Now, C.S. Lewis wrote in a letter to a friend about a circle of friends that had a great influence on his life. He, he wrote, and I've often quoted it this way, is there any pleasure on earth so great as a circle of Christian friends by the fire? And I realized when I checked that quote this week that I've been misquoting it for years. That's not exactly what he said in the letter. Here's what he said in the letter. Is there any pleasure on earth so great as a circle of Christian friends by a good fire? That's what he said. And that's a beautiful statement. And Ephesians is a good fire. So this text, this passage, this little book, this letter that was sent to those churches, to that church and circulated among those churches has, has had a transformational effect on the lives of hundreds of thousands of millions of people over a couple of thousand years. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, are the section that, that we're, we're going to study uh, right now. So take your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 1 through 13. This is one of those uh, parenthetical statements. So Paul is uh, in chapter 1, if you recall, he started this great doxology about all the things that people who are in Christ are blessed with. And then in the second part of chapter 1, he prays that the people who receive the letter and read it will have these blessings. Right In chapter 2, there are two sections and two actual, actually two sentences in, in chapter 2, and they go over the same material two times. Essentially, pointing to what you were like, what people are like before the Lord, before Christ, and then what they're like after they came to know the Lord. And he talks about how people that were, just in general, what they were like before the Lord, you know, dead in their trespasses and sins, but God, and, and how he made them alive. And then he specifically mentions the despised Gentiles, most of whom, most of the church in Ephesus was made up of Gentiles, because in chapter 3 he says, you Gentiles, mostly Gentiles. Even though there was a large expatriate Jewish population in Ephesus, and even though there are the remains of a large synagogue, ruins of a large synagogue in Ephesus, and there were certainly Jewish converts in that church, they were primarily, they were converted devil worshiper types. Uh, if you read Acts, you see that. So now when you get to chapter 3, he's going to pray for them. He starts out, for this reason, and if you look at verse 14, he says, for this reason, I'll bow my knees to the Father. He's getting ready to pray for them. But then he, he, he interrupts himself again, and he reminds them of what he had taught them last, or mentioned last, which we studied last week, and so last week's message was called, Why Church? And, and it's like, oh, and, and yet there's more, he says. There, there's more. So this week, it's Why Church Part 2. It's important. So church is, is important. And we're going to answer the question, Why Church Part 2? And catch this when we read uh, chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on the behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, 
which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light to everyone that is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. I don't know how that impressed you, but here's how it impressed me. When I first began to study this, I thought that's got a lot of high language in it, a lot of obviously important and wonderful things, and it seems initially kind of hard to understand. That was my first impression. Maybe you're smarter than I am, and you just got it right away. But for me, it's like, hmm. And here's what I have learned about Bible study. And that is when you're like, like tripping through the forest of truth, you know, and, and you come into a dense patch that, that's hard to understand, stop right there and get out your digging tools and go to digging because there's probably a treasure there. Now, that is really true about Ephesians and chapter 3 and verses 1 through 13, an absolute treasure once you kind of work your way through what isn't really initially apparent I like to listen to folk music a bit. A folk singer named Irish De- Iris Dement, a favorite. But she doesn't know the Lord. She sings hymns a lot, but she doesn't know the Lord. Now, no excuse for her, right? I mean, if you sing hymns, you should have an enlightenment there. And, and she, she did write a song which expresses as kind of her credo. It expresses her faith or her lack of faith. I'll, I'll read it to you. It's interesting. It's called Let the Mystery Be. Have you heard this? Let the Mystery Be. Everybody's wondering what and where they all come from. Everybody's wondering about where they're going to go when the whole thing's done. But no one really knows for certain, and so it's all the same to me. I think I'll just let the mystery be. Some say, once you're gone, you're gone forever. Some say, you're going to come back. Some say, you rest in the arms of the Savior if in sinful ways you lack. And some say, you're coming back in the garden, a bunch of carrots and little sweet peas. I think I'll just let the mystery be. Everybody's wondering what and where... They all came from, everybody's worrying about where they're going to go when the whole thing's done. But no one knows for certain, and so it's all the same to me. I think I'll just let the mystery be. And then she's saying, some say they're going to a place called glory. I ain't saying it ain't a fact. But I've heard that I'm on the road to purgatory, and I don't like the sound of that. I believe in love, and I live my life accordingly, but I just choose to let the mystery be. Everybody's wondering what and where they all came from. Everybody's worried about where they're going to go when the whole thing's done. But nobody knows for certain, so it's all the same to me. I think I'll just, I think I'll just let the mystery be. Yeah, that's not a good idea, right? So her idea is that everything about God, glory, the Savior, is sin, it's just a mystery you can't know. Now, 
Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, refers to a mystery repeatedly. And in the, the New Testament letters, there's the, they have much to say about mystery. There's a couple kinds of mystery. One, it's a mystery that's referred to like things about God that we won't know in our lifetime that God may reveal to us as eternity unfolds. And there are things that, like the things that we do know, we know so well, and we have such confidence in them, and they are such a bedrock for our lives, that the things that we don't know about God, we trust. So that's one kind of mystery the Bible talks about. And if you're going to say, well, I'm going to believe all the things that he's been very clear about, and the rest that's a mystery I'm going to trust him for, then that's a very Christian way of looking at things. But there are mysteries in the Bible that a special reference to mystery, and this one that's referred to over and over again, is this is the mystery. It's like something that God had hidden in his heart that only he knew, that angels and demons didn't even know. But it was in the plan of God throughout time that goes back before the foundation of the earth. And there was a point in time when he decided to reveal it to people who wanted to know. And that's what we're talking about here. And the mystery here is, is specifically, the, the sentence kind of runs on in terms of what Paul's saying about himself until he gets to verse 6 and he says, this is the mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body. Another way of saying it is the mystery is what? When Gentiles and Jewish people get together and the Gentiles don't have to be Jewish converts, but they worship the same God, what do you call that? I'll give you a hint. Yeah, church, that's church. It's church. The mystery is the church. The church is the mystery that was once hidden, and now it's plainly revealed to those you know, who are initiated. And Paul says, basically, to embrace it is to transform your life. And notice that. When you embrace the church, this mystery of the church, when Paul embraced it, it changed him completely. He was a persecutor of the church, and then he became an apostle servant of the church. Uh, He says, I'm a prisoner. Uh, By the way, I'll give you a little tip about prison ministry. I've done a little prison ministry. The question you want to ask is not the question you should ask in prison ministry. So like when you go visit a prisoner, what's the question you want to ask? Yeah, like, why are you here, right? But you you don't want to ask that question. It's just a little awkward. You know what I'm saying? Now, I've gotten myself in a little trouble not asking that question, but that's a story for another day. Paul, on the other hand, he says right away, hey, I'm a prisoner. And it's for you. And the reason I'm a prisoner is because I believe that the Gentiles and the Jews and, and the nations should all worship together. I believe that all mankind, all humankind should worship together in the same group, which is called the church. That was a phenomenal idea. That was the secret in the heart of God. But it was a shock to the people who heard it. Because the Gentiles had great prejudice against the Jews. And the Jews had intense prejudice against the Gentiles. And Paul, in being a, you know, the, the Jewish of the, of the most Jewish of the Jews. The Pharisee of the Pharisees, he called himself. He was very, very Jewish. Became, ironically, a minister to, he would have been the perfect Jewish evangelist guy, and God made him a, a minister to who? To the Gentiles. And, and without giving you a lot of detail, if you read the historical narratives and you kind of correlate the historical narratives and the, 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 the material in the epistles, you see that Paul got himself into serious trouble because of 
true and false accusations about him involving the Gentiles uh, and, and, and along on an equal level with the Jews. And it might be just a little bit like there was a time in our country when even as Christians, people who, who were Bible-toting, church-building, hymn-singing Christians wouldn't let black people worship with them. How in the world can you read your Bible, sing your hymns, pray to God who made all men and women, and then isolate other people as if they aren't as valuable as you? How can we, do, how can we have those kind of, of blind spots? It's Black History Month. And so one of the things I'm going to do, along with watching a few films, and I'm going to read uh, the, the biography, one of the biographies of Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass was an orator. He was an escaped slave. He was a statesman. He was a brilliant man. And he was insightful about the church. He had some really interesting things to say about how he had seen churches built with money that people gained by buying and selling other human beings. Now this is this passage here, Paul is taking aim at prejudice. He's taking aim at that kind of vile prejudice. And he's saying, uh, you know, as you've heard it said before, the ground around the cross is all level. And he says, you know, I am a prisoner on behalf of the Gentiles. God had to really wake him up, and, and Peter and, and others had to really wake And if you read the New Testament with those Jew-Gentile spectacles on, you see this is a major thing in the whole, uh, the whole uh, argument of the whole New Testament. Paul says, I'm a prisoner. His life was transformed when he understood the truth about the church. And, and later on in verse 8, it says he's a minister. I'm a, what is he, what's that? He's, he says, I'm a, I'm a prisoner for the Gentiles. I'm a servant. I'm the lowest of, of servants for the Gentiles. Verse 7, of this gospel, which is what? The gospel in this case is referring specifically to what it said in verse 6. What is the good news gospel? In verse 7, it's the good news that in verse 6, that the Gentiles and the Jews, as verse 6, are fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of this gospel. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. So what's Paul saying? He says, you remember Paul, Saul, persecutor of the church, hated the church, hated Christians. But when God enlightened him and gave him a gift of grace, a gift from God, and the gift was that he enlightened him to be a minister. So now, because he was a minister of the good news to the Gentiles, he was a prisoner. His life was totally different. How many of you think Paul was a fulfilled human being? I, I, if you read about Paul, you have to. This is a guy that moderns would call highly self-actualized. Paul was a, was a driven, passionate, knew where he was going, knew what he was doing. His life was like on fire. He was on fire for God, even though he died as a martyr. Paul's life was completely changed. And when you get the idea about, you know, when we ask the question, why church? Why church? Because when... When you are, when you embrace the idea of church, it will change, it will transform your life. People who really, not just like, you know, pew sitters or churchy types, but people who really are, who understand the mystery of the gospel and this whole work of God in our age, those are the people whose lives are completely transformed by it. 
Not just kind of people with a bit of religious, like you go to a club and you got a little religious club. and and That's not what we're talking about. See, Paul didn't do that. There's a slide here I want you to see. It it, it describes how Paul referred to himself. In Philippians 3 and verse 5, Paul was remembering back before he knew the Lord. And he said, back then, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He says, Jewish, I was Jewish. Later on, when he, he came to know the Lord, he called himself the least of the apostles. He says, I'm an apostle, but I'm, I'm the least of the apostles. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 9. Three years later, in Ephesians chapter 3, in the text that we're studying today, he calls himself not a Hebrew of the Hebrews, not the least of the apostles. What does he call himself? The least of the saints. Just before he dies, three years later, he writes to Timothy and he calls himself the chief of sinners. Now listen to me. There's a difference between shame and humility. Shame is what we have before the Lord. We think of our sins and we don't have the cross in view. But when we think of our sins with the cross in view, our shame turns to humility. And we include all men and all women. And there's a, and, and that we emphasize, as we grow older in the Lord, we're not more and more convinced about how good we are or how valuable we are or how worthy we are or how talented we are or how knowledgeable we are or how experienced we are. If a person is really getting their roots down the Lord, they get more and more excited about what? The grace of God. The grace of God. Every one of these passages where Paul is referring to himself, if you read it carefully, you will see that it is a passage about the grace of God. The more that we grow, the deeper our roots go down in, I'm here because God gifted this to me, because God was merciful to me, because God forgave me, because God's mercy was rich toward me, and his love was great toward me. And so he was a prisoner, he was a minister, and he was growing in unity and sincere love, and, and lacking in, you know, it's the, the more you get to know the Lord, the less prejudice you have toward people. And then a growing humility and less shame and more humility. We'll talk about that more. So why the church? Why the church? Because to embrace it transforms your life. Amen? Second thing, why the church? To share it transforms everybody else's life. It shakes heaven and earth. Now this is just an amazing section in through here. Uh, Let's just read it uh, again. And I want you to just follow and go ahead and uh, I want you to just follow this here as, as I read this. You're going to see that there, there, the church is described in four ways to four different groups. If you see this, in, this is what it says, starting in verse 8. To me, I'm the very least of saints. He said, grace was given to do what? To preach to the Gentiles, that's one group, the unsearchable riches of Christ. So the unsearchable riches of Christ is one of the ways he's referring to the church. Then he says, I preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable uh, riches of Christ. Verse 9, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. The plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who is your creator, by the way, he's saying, is what? That's another name for the church. All the answers, all the questions are going to be answered church today, just so you know, okay? When I ask a question, just go church and you'll probably be right, all right? Because this is what this message is about. Church is not just kind of a religious club where hypocrites hang out. This is what the world thinks, right? Church is a place where people 
servants of the living God, touched by the grace of God, gathered to do the work of God and bring heaven and earth together under God. That's what the church is tasked to do in our time. How powerful. So to the Gentiles, he preaches the unsearchable riches of Christ. And he enlightens everyone of the mystery of the ages hidden in God who is their creator. Don't you forget it, right? And then, look there in verse 10 is when it get, the plot really thickens. My goodness, listen. So that through the church, there it's named church, right? The manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. That's angels and demons. This is according to the eternal purpose. He's realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So through the church, the unsearchable riches of Christ are, pre- are given to the Gentiles. These riches that, that weren't just for one group of people, that they're for all the nations. Anyone who's in Christ has all the riches of Christ. We preach that. That's good news. We proclaim. We're like, hey, guess what? This is the tr-. That's our, let people know that. That's what Paul said I, that he was commissioned to do, and we're commissioned to do. And then through the church, the mystery of the ages is made known to everyone. So, there's a, so understand there's a certainty that we can have because the apostles and prophets delivered it to us in the Bible. There are things that we can know and we can build our lives on them and our families on them, our nation on those things. Our churches, obviously. Through the church, the mystery of the ages is made known to everyone. Verse 9, through the church, the manifold wisdom and the, the, the idea of manifold is like, like almost like a kaleidoscope. Many colored, variegated, there's all kinds of facets to it. The wisdom of God, especially how he worked to make the church the church, which was his secret, which he opened up later on for everybody to see. And this is displayed to who in verse 10? Yeah, it, oh, that's right. I asked a question and you answered church. That's right. You're, you're right. Through the church in verse 10, is, <laughs> I was wrong. The demons and angels, sorry. The de- I, 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 I cheated you. Sorry. The demons and angels in verse 10. The demons and angels in verse 10 is displayed to them through the to the church. So the church is to display to the demons and angels the wisdom of God? Yeah. Wow. Church kind of a big deal? Yeah, it's a big deal. Um, you say, well, I'm not sure I, you know, uh, I really believe in demons. Like, well, you, you will. <laughs> but let me read you something uh, John Piper wrote well about this. He said, before anyone writes off as pre-scientific mythology, think again. Is it real evidence or is it just a pervasive mood of secularism that makes Satan and his host unpalatable to modern folk like us? Have all our modern scientific advances given us a handle on the evil forces in the world? Is not just the opposite the case that the cosmic forces of evil manage to get a handle on every human invention, every human institution and corrupt them and turn them into destruction? Nuclear power becomes the basis for international braggadocio and mutual threats of national suicide and multi-purpose petroleum becomes the currency of international blackmail and pain-reliving drugs become a multi-billion dollar market in life-destroying narcotics and advances in obstetrical science serve to refine the technique of manslaughter it's actually murder through millions of abortions free enterprise degenerates into money loving greed and exploitation of third world countries and the grand institution of the university sinks into debauchery into foolishness are we really so advanced that we can do without the biblical doctrine of evil and of demons 
And consequently, our lives, when we do, they often lack the flavor of eternity and the aroma of something ultimate. Oh, that there might be more people among us whose manner of life mirrors something mysterious and wonderful, whose words have cosmic significance. People who really do believe in angels and in demons and in heaven and in hell and in God, right? Don't, don't, write, don't write those things off. Here's the way I look at it, you know, you know. When I was in school, I was, I, I was uh, hi, hyper. I'm all calm now, but I was hyper then. And, and it was hard for me to concentrate. And so the teacher would be talking. It would just be like somebody up there making noises. You know, wah, wah, wah. You know, and I couldn't, I often couldn't concentrate. And then I would notice around me the smart people were writing. And I was like, what? What would he say? What would he say? Like, if, and, I, and I realized smart people that get good grades, they have this instinct that's, it's kind of that, this is on the test instinct. They know. They this, Watch the smart people, you know. They go, they're like, oh. And you're like, so I would get, so I'd be like, they're writing. So I'd be like, okay, if their pencil's moving, <laughs> my pencil's moving because they're smart. And this must be on the test. Later on, when I got more advanced in my academics, I would just go to them and befriend them and be very charming and borrow their notes and photocopy them. And then take them home and then read their notes because, I mean, they're the smart people. Now, this is what I'm saying. When the angels and demons look into something, they might be onto something, right? If the angels are interested, maybe you should be interested. If the demons care, maybe you should care. These are things, listen to what the Bible says about angels. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, it talks about the gospel. And it says the angels long to bend over like from heaven and look into those things. Angels long to look in. They intensely care about the trajectory of the work of the Christian church and of the gospel and the progress of the gospel gospel and of the triumphs of the gospel and of the stories of the gospel and they and there's uh, rejoicing among the angels in heaven over even one repentant sinner sometimes we don't get excited about what we ought to get excited that's the super bowl in heaven people when one sinner comes to repentance the angels have the good sense to rejoice and the demons groan we we're just kind of like bored waiting for our next expensive toy or entertainment Maybe it would be a good idea that while the angels' pencils are moving that we take some notes too, right? They know what's going on, right? Angels surround the throne as they see the redemptive drama unfold. They burst into song, right? In Revelation chapter 5, the angels are like, wait for the foreign living creature. And the the elders are saying, is it our, the angels are like, is it our turn? And then in chapter 5, a multitude of angels, which no man can number, starts to burst into song because they're looking down on earth. And now because they're not all knowing, now they see what God is doing, they desire and long to look into it. We are players on the stage upon which they look, right? They're the, the angels and demons are, were displaying to them. Angels watch the drama unfold with personal fascination. It also says this in 1 Corinthians 4.9, for I think God has, I'm quoting 1 Corinthians 4.9, For I think God has exhibited as uh, us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death. Track with this. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and men. And the word spectacle there is used in two contexts. It's dramatic, but it's two places. In the gladiator drama and in the Roman triumph drama. The person that's going to die is the spectacle. He says, as apostles, as spokesmen for the church, I think that we are spectacles. We're on our way to die on the stage, on the, in, the, in the Roman triumph, we're on our way to die. In the gladiator fight, we're on our way to die. 
and the, and, and the angels and the demons are in the stands, and they're watching us live out our faithfulness to God. This is a powerful thing. What does it do for us? It helps us to recognize that church isn't just some little, you know, part of your life. It's a little, you know, that you, it, it, that, but that, but when you get a hold of it and when you embrace it, it will transform your life. And when you share it, it will shake heaven and earth. People will be transformed. Cultures will be transformed. Families will be changed. Individuals will come to know the Lord and to have their, their hearts delivered from their sin and their guilt and their bondage and their death and their shame. This is big stuff. It's, it's earth shaking. It's heaven and earth shaking. De- de- angels and demons aren't all knowing. And, and as a matter of fact, the demons um, weren't really aware when they plotted to have Jesus crucified that they were playing into his providential plan. It says so. In 1 Corinthians 2, 6, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age. Again, same thing, principalities, powers, kind of rulers, who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden from the demons, right? And that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The angels desire to look into those things. And so you have this, it's fascinating to see it. Paul just describes the church in like maybe four different ways. He says, when we preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the the nations, when we do our missionary work, when we display or enlighten the, the people, everyone, to the mystery of the ages, when we make manifold, then in, in so doing, we make manifold, we make the manifold wisdom of God known to angels and demons indirectly. Stop. You read some literature and, and you've maybe heard people say, walk through your neighborhood and rebuke the demons, right? You ever, hear, you ever read, read this? Walk through your neighborhood and declare the victory, you know, and should you do that? How many of you think so? I mean, think about that. Is that something we should do? How do we do spiritual warfare? Do we rebuke the demons? Do we speak to them? Do we preach the gospel to the heavenlies and then preach the gospel to the lost people? Well, this text is, is saying, if you, if you know, there's a purpose clause in, in the text. Uh, and, and, and it shows that what we do is we proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. And we enlighten everyone to the mystery of the one who created them. And in so doing... In so doing, as a result of that, then displayed in the heavens to the demons and the angels is the, the grand unfolding drama of redemption. And we know this because when we get specific direction about how to do spiritual warfare in this very same book in chapter 6, you will notice that we're, we're not told to, to pray kind of mystical prayers into the heavens, but we're given very concrete weaponry that we're to use. And we'll talk about that when we get there. But again, that's a story uh, for another day. And so here what you have through the church, the eternal purpose of God then is become a reality. Notice where is the eternal purpose of God stated in Ephesians? Remember 1, 10, 2, 10, 3, 10? Look at 1 and verse 10. It says, the plan for the fullness of time, verse 9 says, the mystery of his will according to his purpose. The plan for the fullness of time is to do what? Verse 10, to unite all things in him. And then it uses this phrase, which is consistently used in the Bible, heaven and earth together. That's why we're declaring to the heavenlies, it's like, it isn't just local. It isn't just temporary. It's eternal, and it's universal, and it's cosmic. This church thing that we're involved in is big. It's bigger than just us. That's what he's saying. 
And so, the, through the church, the eternal purpose of God has made a, re- a reality. Look in chapter 2 and verse 10. This is through the church doing good works and preaching the gospel. Whereas workmanship, we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. And that brings us back to chapter 3 and verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This is according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what we know. We know that there is this drama unfolding. It is the ultimate reality, right? This is what's really happening around us, in the heavens, in our life. This is what matters most to you. That's why church is a big deal, because it's what God is doing in our time through the church. The manifold wisdom of God is being made known. The plan of God is being lived out. Heaven and earth are coming together through the church. That's why after the prayer in verse 21, he says to him, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and forever. This is the church. If you're ever tempted to be discouraged with the church, don't give up on the church. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 19 says it this way in verses 19 and 20. For him, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth or in heaven. There it is again. Making peace through the blood of the cross. Jesus said, pray this way, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 3, they're looking for someone who can unseal the scrolls. And they say, there's no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth. And then they wait, and everybody, and John weeps. Remember, there's just like this pregnant silence in heaven. It's like, wait, there's no one. There's no one on earth in heaven. There's no one on earth. There's no one under the earth. There's no one. And then he weeps, right? Until finally then what happens And the lamb steps forward. And, and then later on, uh, the, he can open the scroll in chapter 5, verses 5, five uh, verse 13. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth said, with the angels, blessing and glory and honor and might forever. When Jesus opened the seal, when the lamb stepped forward. Why would Paul and the Holy Spirit want the Ephesians to understand this? And why is it important for you? And why is it important for me? Why, why do we need to know this? In particular, this verse 10, when it says displaying to the angels and demons, why, why would we need to know that? Why we, I'll tell you why we need to know it. You get to know, you see that when you see why they needed to know it. Think about it. First of all, they knew the reality of the spirit world in Ephesus, right? They knew the reality of the spirit world in Ephesus, right? They did. Did they believe in demons? Yeah. Remember when they got saved in Acts and then they burned all their stuff that they were involved in all that demonic stuff? Yeah. You say, I don't believe in demons. Well, the people that buy the books, hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars worth of paraphernalia about demons and witches and all of that stuff in our nation and practice that stuff, they, they directly believe and everyone else is under the power of the evil one who's not been enlightened by Christ. You might want to Think that through. Why did the Holy Spirit, why did Paul want the people in Ephesus not just to know that they're going to preach the gospel to everyone, but that when it happened, that it would be displayed in the heavenlies? Because he wanted them to understand that they, that they, the, the place of the church the, in, in the whole spectrum of, like, of evil, that the church was a player in that. And he wanted them to understand and have confidence in the power of the church over the forces of spiritual darkness. That's why. And he wants us to believe that too. And we struggle to believe it. Now, uh, there you have the purpose of God, the, the, the personal purpose of God. Involved guys like Paul and others, and, and you and I, and the universal purpose of God that goes all the way, you know, uh, all, through all time. 
and the eternal purpose of God and the cosmic spiritual purpose of God. And it's all displayed in the church. So when you're involved in the smallest little Sunday school class, you're, you're a player in that. When, you pet, when, when the, when the, when the uh, offering plate passes and you give a gift for the ministry of the church, then you're, 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 falling, you're, you're flowing into the grand stream which flows into the grand river, which is the, like, the, like a mighty army moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where the saints have trod. Right? That's like, we are not divided. All one body, we. That's how the song goes. That's what this text is saying. Get it together, people. You're the church. Get it together, people. You're the bride of Christ. Let's not mud wrestle, right? Your church, let's not be petty. Let's, let's, this is a big thing. This isn't a little thing. This is a big thing. Pettiness aside, this is the church of the living God. They're leaning over in heaven, and they're, and they're reaching up out of hell to see what's happening in the church today in the, in the grand unfolding of the redemptive uh, drama of God. Let me give you an example. When I was a boy, we, my dad was very frugal, and so he didn't like to buy a lot of stuff. I remember, and he, he's a good dad. Don't misunderstand, but he was just very careful, and, and so I, I would get an allowance. At the time, it was uh, enough to buy one Matchbox car a week. Not a Hot Wheels, because they were more expensive Matchbox cars. And I could go to the Bonanza store on Friday night, and if I did my chores, I could buy one car, add it to my collection. There was another place we would go for treasures, and that was the dump on River Road. And I'm not joking. We would go to the dump. I'd be like, hey, Dad, can I go? Because I would go through the dump. Don't you feel bad for me? You see me little, like a little poor urchin, a little Oliver hat on in the dump. And I would be in the dump, you know, the poor little Baptist preacher's kid. That doesn't have any, and I would be looking for treasures in the dump. I'd be looking around, find books and things like that. Explode aerosol cans. Don't do that kind of thing. And, and in, in the dump, why was that funny? See, that's not good. Uh, it shows that you guys are a little twisted. Anyway, so that's what I would do. There was a dump in Ephesus. There was a, there was a dump outside of town. And the people would take things that have no value and they would put them on the dump outside of town in Ephesus. Sometimes Christians would paw through the dump. Sometimes Christians were closed out of civic and uh, life and, and they would paw through the dump. You know what they would put in the dump in Ephesus? Sometimes, because of Roman law, if you had a baby you didn't really desire because it was deformed, or because it was weak, or because it was a girl, or because it was conceived out of wedlock, because you had visited the temple of Artemis or the brothel across the street, those little babies were left exposed in the dump to die. It was a crude, primitive form of abortion. And the Christians would walk through the dump and they would find the babies and they would take them home and they would raise them. And then people in the town, when they would see, imagine seeing a familiar child that you thought you would never meet. It would make you wonder, what are these Christian people thinking? Why did they look at the world in such a different way than we look at the world why would they value that deformed child? Why would, they put a, why would they consider that valuable and precious as sacrifice for it? See, that's what the church is supposed to look like. The kind of like, we're wired completely different than the world and our values are completely, it's not just we're, like we're hateful against them because of what they do, but we go to the dump and we rescue out of the dump. And we raise as cherished something that somebody else had set aside. There's a little bit more in the text there, and it's beautiful. In the last two verses that we're going to consider today, 
To experience it erases past shame and it ennobles current suffering. Look at verses 12 and 13. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. What happens when you take the church seriously? Well, it will transform your life. It will shake, actually, it will shake heaven and hell. It will transform whole, whole cultures. And also, it will, it, will, it will erase your past shame and ennoble your current suffering. Who was Paul, right? Paul's a guy who every time he opened his mouth talked about his past shame. He said, I, I, was, I, I, I don't deserve to be a, an apostle. I persecuted the church, but because of the grace of God, but because of the grace of God. Remember the difference between shame and humility? Some of you have never gotten free of your shame. Even some of you who are Christians haven't really fully embraced this idea that shame is totally displaced by a genuine, rich Christian humility. And how's that done? When we take our sin and we use it as the velvet backdrop behind the diamond that is the grace of God expressed through Jesus Christ, our Lord, then whatever it is that you were ashamed of in your past is now a part of your testimony and a testament to the glory of God. Did you get that? That was like, I, I remember one time in, in, in my youth, sitting in, in a shameful way and, and just going to church the next time and, and, and asking God's forgiveness and then be it there in the church and then they, they picked they pick the hymn. And, and it kind of went like this. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. It's nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. That's the first time I ever really sang that song in a minute because I realized my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought is nailed to the cross. I'm no, longer, I'm no longer in bondage to shame because Jesus changed that to genuine humility now. There's a total difference. That will be good for your soul when you get that. When you preach the gospel to your soul, though you might already be a follower of Jesus, and you are already a Christian maybe, when you start preaching the gospel and singing the gospel to the depths of your soul, it changes the shame of your past into the humility of ministry like it did for him. And then he said, and I don't want you to be, I don't want you to suffer or be afraid or be sad for me because I'm in prison. That's my glory. That should be your glory. That's something that you should be grateful for. That's what he's saying. It ennobles our suffering. We're no longer just suffering. It's not just like, our life isn't just one meaningless fail video. You ever see those? You ever watch those? They're like peanuts. You just can't watch one. You got to watch them over and over again. Some kid grind rail and he, you know, he kind of falls there and on his head. And he, that, why is that funny? You know, don't, don't pretend you don't like to watch those. Like late at night, you know, when you don't have anything else to do, you're watching Russian road rage videos one after another because you love to see people have accidents. Don't lie about this. You're in church. You know you do this, right? Why is it like, my life is just, you know, it's coming unglued. It's like, and then I get hurt at the end. And the only value is people get a good laugh. No, no, no. That's not what's happening. Your suffering is ennobled in Christ. Yes, you will suffer. And you may even die. And yet, for the glory of God, it's your glory. Do you see that? That changes everything. The, when you get the idea of the work, the unfolding drama, the beauty of what God's doing in our age, it, it, then it erases past shame and it ennobles the suffering that we have to go through. Now, that's just a wonderful thing. Kevin DeYoung wrote a book about the church. And he was encouraging people not to give up on the church. And here's what his concluding words in his book were useful. He said, don't give up on the church. The New Testament knows nothing of churchless Christianity. 
The invisible church is for invisible Christians. The visible church, that's for you and me. So I guess this is my final advice. Kevin DeYoung says, pastors over in Lansing, find a good local church. Get involved. Be a member. Stay there for the long haul. Put away thoughts of revolution for a while and join the plotting visionaries. Go to church this Sunday. Worship there in spirit and in truth. Be patient with your leaders. Rejoice when the gospel is faithfully proclaimed. Bear with those who hurt you. Give people the benefit of the doubt. While you're there, sing like you mean it. Say hi to the teenager no one notices. Welcome the blue hairs and the, and the nose ringed. And volunteer for the nursery every once in a while. And yes, bring your fried chicken to the potluck like everyone else. And invite a friend to church. And take a new couple out for coffee. And give to the Christmas offering. And be thankful someone vacuumed the carpet. Enjoy Sundays. And let that click for you and pray extra hard for the Sundays that don't click for you and don't despise the day of small things. That's just some good straightforward advice. James Boyce said, so here's what's happening, right? When you, when you look at this text and you get, get it in your heart, here's how James Boyce is with the Lord now. He sees this so clearly. He said it, it's like this. So God, let history unfold like a great drama on a cosmic stage. The angels are in the audience We are the actors. Satan is there to do everything he can to resist and hinder the grand, beautiful purposes of God. The drama unfolds across the centuries while Ab and Eve and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and Isaiah and John the Baptist and Jesus and Peter and Paul and all the other actors in Christian history, both minor and great on the stage, play the part that God has assigned to them. That's what he said. And then I say to you, and now you and I have our parts to play in the church, in this grand, unfolding, wonderful, terrifying drama. Satan is attacking. Angels are straining forward to see the conflict, waiting to be dispatched to help the saints. The ages are rolling on. The church is moving on like a mighty army toward the inevitable purposes of our sovereign king. That's what's happening. That's why church, that's why we get involved. So this is why we dream about having people fully immersed in the whole program of the come and the grow and the serve experience. And that's why we dream about a refreshing movement of the gospel even among us. That's why we're not satisfied to just leave things as they are. That's why we plan. That's why we give. That's why we work. That's what we dream about, that our children will have that experience, that, that, that the, the church, the way God sees it, the church, the way the angels and demons see it, will capture the hearts of our young people, and they will then have an eternal purpose in their souls. That's why church, that's why church. When I was a boy, my parents are devoted to church. And my dad, he took a church in New Carlisle, Indiana, and it was tiny. It was actually not a church yet. It was kind of a mission of another church that they were trying to restart. And my dad was a young guy, and he went to New Carlisle. And we, I remember scraping paint, and I remember taking down the church sign. I remember working really hard to kind of get that thing going. At the time... It was um, really common for churches like ours to initiate services on Sunday night. Uh, that, that's kind of a different deal now, but that's the way it was then. And so my dad said, well, we'll have Sunday night services. And he didn't really have a meeting about it. He didn't really get people to agree or promise they would come. He just announced it was going to happen. And so that night, we had Sunday night church in New Carlisle, Indiana. I remember it really well because... We were the only ones there. 
My dad was the pastor, and my mom played the piano. Mom and dad, they, they just went through church like, like it was um, uh, Spurgeon's Tabernacle. <laughs> Sitting there on a summer night, and my, my sister and I were kind of looking at each other like, what, can we just go to Dairy Queen, you know? <laughs> What's going on? They were just having church, you know? My mom's up there, they're, they're going to take up an offering. I was looking at my sister like, we're broke. I'm like, we don't have any money. What are you doing? They're like, we're Baptists. We take offerings. That's what we do, you know. And my dad started preaching. And so we were, after a while, we thought, well, I guess we're supposed to pretend it's real, you know. So we're like sitting there in New Carlisle, Indiana, when all the normal kids were out playing in this church while my dad was preaching. And my mom was like, amen, yeah, nodding. My sister, yeah. My dad was a few minutes into the message when there was a noise. And the back door creaked open. (laughs) And an elderly lady came in. And her husband was with her. Betty and Bill. Betty and Bill. Now we knew them because it was my grandma's sister who had heard that Kenny and Jane were trying to get a church going not too far away. And they thought, well, out of duty, out of obligation, they really ought to go down there and try to encourage them. So there they were, elderly people. They were late for church. They set in on the message. Then finally my dad dismissed the whole crowd. (laughs) And we went out to play and catch fireflies on the lawn. I remember that night so well. I I have a picture of it in my mind. Of that little white church there on the outskirts of town. And that nighttime with us on the lawn catching fireflies. And my Aunt Betty and Uncle Bill coming out of that church... And there in the arch of light, my mom on the steps of the church says to my Aunt Betty, I love you, Aunt Betty. Do you know for sure if you died tonight, you'd go to heaven? And my Aunt Betty said, well, I'd like to think I would. And then my mom said, I can explain to you how you can know for sure. And that night, my Aunt Betty my Uncle Bill prayed to receive Christ. And a few years later, they died on the same night, and they went directly to heaven to be with the Lord. So you ask the question, why church? And that's the answer right there. Now, after a message like this, Pastor Come, after a message like this, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I would love to just do something. Is that what you're thinking? I'd like to just do something. Let the church be the church. Amen? Say amen. Amen. And I would like to be involved in some way. Do you have a microphone? So Pastor's going to come and give you just one of the ways that you can be involved, and he's going to close in prayer. Thank you so much. Thanks.